There is something that's absolutely beautiful when we, by the grace of God, have the opportunity to live in accordance with what God's express will is and what his, uh, his design for our life is. And we don't, we don't always do that well. I mean, we don't always live in the light of eternity, do we? I mean, think about that for just a second. Uh, how long are you going to live, you think? What do you think? The Bible says 70, 80 years are going to do pretty good, right? Some people live a little longer than that. My mom's 80, so at any time she could die in the middle of this thing. And uh, <laughs> if she does, we'll have an altar call. I never do that, but <laughs> no. But, you know, they're, they're, life is, is relatively brief, right? But when you think about eternity, how long is eternity? Can you, can you map that out? Can you, can you even begin to put that on a graph, for example? You can't, right? Because if you do, it's... it's uh, but it's not a ray, but it's a line. It has an arrow on both ends, right? I mean, eternity goes increasingly in every direction. There's an eternity past, and there's an eternity future. So if you were to take a graph line of eternity, if you could do that, which you cannot, and you were to try to pinpoint in it where your lifespan is, think about that for a minute, how big would the dot be? I mean, you couldn't sharpen your pencil enough to, with an electron microscope, you couldn't get it because that line's ever getting bigger and your, your dot's ever getting smaller. But the sad reality of most of us as we walk on planet Earth is we live our life, uh, we walk our Christian walk as if those 70, 80 years were everything and eternity is an afterthought. What happens when a believer gets a glimpse of the fact that God is working on an eternal basis and that we are to use our 70, 80 years, our temporal life here to impact eternity. How differently do you live? How differently do you spend your time, your money? How do you view your relationships? What are your goals? If we realize that the 70, 80 years we have here is small, and that we have an opportunity in our lives, like David, who after serving his purpose in his generation, died. We have a chance to impact eternity by the grace of God. That should reorder our lives dramatically, I think. And that's what I'm talking about when I, when I talk about the winsome beauty of an eschatological mindset. That is somebody who is thinking not merely of the dot, but thinking of the line. Somebody who is thinking in the long-term perspective that God has a plan and a purpose and he's working out his plan over history and outside of even time to accomplish his goals. And we are invited by him to be a part of that. There's something absolutely charming, absolutely beautiful, absolutely engaging when you see people catching that and living that way. We've seen that throughout. We see it in the Bible, of course. We've seen it in history. I think of guys like William Carey. You know, here's a guy living in a beautiful countryside of England who absolutely just catches the vision that God is up to something and God is looking to impact the world. That he's, according to his word, trying to reach every people, nation, tongue, you know, the whole shebang, right? And he gets a glimpse of that sitting in the countryside up north uh, west of, 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 of London. And he decides, you know, I'm going to go to India. That's a people, that's a tongue. They've never heard the gospel. How can, how can I serve my Lord in that way? And he becomes, in a sense, the father of missions, right, as he heads that direction. Or a guy like William Whiting Borden, who, who left everything. I mean, this is Borden. You heard the name before, right? 
This is the Borden, you know, Elsie the Borden cow, the milk, the, you know, all that kind of stuff. This is that Borden. This guy was an heir to all of that fortune. He, gets a, he, he becomes a Christian. He gets this concept in his mind. He understands that God is, is, has a bigger picture in mind. And so he sets aside all, all of his things. He gives away his inheritance. He, he leaves his family and what's comfortable and gets on a boat to, so that he can go and reach Muslims in China, northern China, with the gospel. That's pretty cool, right? I mean, that's a guy. I mean, think about that for a minute. He has everything in the world's perspective, right? Everything he needs for the dot, but he's willing to drop it all because he's, he's viewing life not from the dot, but from the line. This is the way it was working for this man. So he gives away his money to, to the cause of the gospel, and he writes in his Bible, no reserves. His dad says, well, you go on this little crazy thing you're going to go do, and when you come back, you know, you don't have a job. You sure you want to do this? And he's like, yeah, I want to follow God. And he writes in his Bible, no retreat. And then on the, on the boat on the way to China, he gets sick, and guess what? He dies. The last inscription he adds into his Bible is, no regrets. He said, wait a minute, what, that's, is that a great story? Because here's a guy, he gave it all away and all this kind of stuff, but you know what? He didn't even get there and do anything. But yet even today, there are missionaries in the field because they've heard of this man's story and go, you know what? I, I can live, I can follow the Lord wherever he wants me to go if that's what he has for me. I think one of the most beautiful pictures of the winsome beauty of an eschatological mindset is found in Genesis chapter 22, if you'll turn there absolutely beautiful passage. It is a passage, my friends, that, that challenges every one of us to the core. You cannot come to this passage and go, yeah, I feel like I really line up with that really well. It, it breaks down every uh, excuse for our lack of surrender to God. It, it convicts us of all the different idolatries that we carry through our lives, our idolatry, whether it be an idolatry of, of comfort or our prestige or, or having power, or even idolatry of family. And here we see in Genesis 22, a man who is so focused upon the, the bigger picture that when God gives him instructions that should seriously rock his world, it's almost as if he doesn't even blink. This is an instructive passage that I want us to examine this morning with a purpose in mind. Okay, and here's your purpose. The purpose is I want us to look at such a man and, and then see what realities were in his life that allowed him to, by the grace of God, behave in the way he did in our passage, and then apply those realities by the grace of God again to our own lives and to our own situations that we find here in 2015. All right? So let's look at it. Genesis 22. You got your Bibles open? If not, go ahead and turn there. Genesis 22, verse 1. <clears throat> Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Okay, let's stop there for a second. It says after these things, it's important that you know what these things are because what has just happened is he has just entered into a treaty with a fellow by the name of Abimelech. It involved water. We're in a drought. We understand the importance of water. These guys really understood it. And so they, they worked out their, their, their situation with the well at Beersheba. Uh, he's just gone through this amazing mountaintop experience where he plants a, a tamarisk tree and he goes a peace to all these people who live in the region so there's not war and all this kind of stuff. And things, my friends, are going great. This is as good as life gets right now. He is at the top. I mean, there's peace. 
there's provision, everything is absolutely hunky-dory. Now, after these things, and this is the way it works sometimes, okay? And you'll notice this in your own life. When you run into the test, guess what? A lot of time the test comes after what? The mountaintop experience. You know what I'm talking about? It's often that God comes back and he says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you and I'm going to continue to mold you and shape you and chisel you into who I want you to be. After these things, God tested Abraham. And he goes to Abraham and he says, Abraham? Abraham responds just the way he should. If God came to you and said, you know, David or whatever, he says, Abraham, he says, here I am. Okay, and that's the first thing I want you to notice right off the bat is that Abraham is available, right? He is ready and willing to be used. He is standing, uh, waiting for God to uh, show him what it is he wants him to do with the life that he has here. You'll find him say, here I am three times, okay? He's ready and available. And then God comes to him and he, look at what he says to him in verse 2. This, how would, just put yourself in, in this, the sandals of this guy for a second. God doesn't communicate in this way anymore. We understand that, right? He can, communicates now through his more sure word, okay? That's all understood, right? But here, this is a way that God would still communicate. Now, check it out. How would you respond if you lived back there in that dispensation and you had this kind of thing happen, all right? God says to him, he says, take now your son your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you. <laughs> Whoa, now, right there, your, your theology books are going, you know, kill my son, what, I shall not kill. You know, all these things are going through your head on how this doesn't really seem to fit, right? Wait a minute, isn't this Isaac? Isn't there some significance to this cat Isaac? Right? What would you do if you were in Abraham's sandals? Would you begin to argue? Well, God, <laughs> I don't think that's really in accordance with your character to kill my son. Or God, don't you remember the promise that you made that you would multiply my seed through Isaac? If I kill him, how's that going to work out, right? God, maybe you're just, you're not thinking this thing. Do we do that, by the way, when we come to his word and he says, this is the way I want you to behave? Do we ever do that? Kind of rationalize the word of God? Argue with it? Just as the Lord forgave you, so also forgive that other person. That's one that I think people rationalize a lot. I'm supposed to forgive in the same way that the Lord forgave? That, you don't know what they did to me. And I'm supposed to forgive? That's a, that's a more sure word, right? So here Abraham gets this, and, and it says, take, and look at how he piles up the terms there. By the way, he ta- refers to Isaac and his, as his son, your only son, all this kind of stuff, 11, no less than 11 times in these verses, all right? He's really driving this home because it's, it's you know, Abraham didn't have this, this boy until he was, you know, 100 years old, right? And he says, I want you to take your son. That would have been enough, right? Take your son and burn offering. But he doesn't say just that. He says, take your son, your only son, now, there was this other guy named Ishmael. You'll remember that one. But this, is his only real, this was the true son, the son of the promise, right? Take your son, your only son. By the way, your son who I happen to know that you love. His name's Isaac. I want you to take him to the land of Moriah, and I want you to offer him to me as a burnt offering. Has God ever asked you to give up anything? And follow him? Maybe pick up a cross. 
Many has. Christian life is full of sacrifices. But I'll, I'll put it to you. I've never been asked to kill my son. <laughs> That'd be a big one, huh? On his worst day, I might have gone, mm. I see your ideas, Lord. I understand your... There's a father, the one that he waited on, the one that meant so much. I mean, turn back just a few chapters to Genesis 15. This is the child of the promise. Look at the beginning of 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abraham. I'm a shield to you. This is God. Uh, your reward shall be very great. Lord, what will you give me since I'm childless and the heir of my household is Eliezer of Damascus? That's a slave, all right? <coughs> Who's adopted as an heir when you didn't have it in the ancient Near Eastern culture. He's, he was the male heir that would get everything of Abraham's. Since you've given me no offspring, no one who's born in my house to be my heir. And the Lord comes to him and he says, come outside with me, Abraham. Check out the stars. Look at all these stars. Can you count them, Abraham? Now, in L.A., you can count all the stars because there's like three that you can see with all the lights. But when I lived in Kansas, man, you go outside, it's like, I didn't have no idea there were these kind of stars. They're just everywhere. You couldn't begin to even count them if you wanted to. He says, that's the way your offspring's going to be. I'm going to give you a son. And you'll remember later, he's like, <laughs> he's laughing, right? You're going to give me a son? I mean, I'm a, I'm a hundred years old. And have you seen my wife? She's 90 years old. How's that going to happen? And so then they're like, well, we've got to help God out with his promise. So, yeah, maybe Sarah can't have a baby, so let's get Hagar in here, right? And they just get, God makes a promise. God says what he's going to do. Here's the deal. God can do anything, amen? God is not limited by anything other than himself when he wants to be limited. And here he is. And God says, I'm going to give you a child. That is nothing for God to do. Every child that you guys have in this room, guess who gave them to you? <coughs> and then he comes and he says, I want you to take your son, your, your, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and I want you to take him to the land of Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering to me there. What's Abraham do? He's ready and he's available. He's got instructions with the Lord. The second thing that you see there is he, he trusts the Lord, right? He doesn't argue with him. He doesn't rationalize it. He trusts him. Look what he does, verse 3. So Abraham arose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. <laughs> see the emphasis there again? And he split wood for the burnt offering and he arose and went to the place that God had told him. So here's Abraham. He doesn't like, I mean, if I'm Abraham, you know what I'm doing? I think I'm going to sleep in tomorrow. You know, I'm going to push this off. I'm like, you know, there's a few things I got to do, and then we'll get going with this thing that God's commanded me to do. You know, but he's like, he's getting up early. He's cutting the wood. He's, he's, he's got Isaac, his son. He's not going to forget him, a kind of important part of the thing, right? And he starts heading out to where God had told him to go. He's, he's obedient to his maker. By the way, there are people who stand saying, I am ready and available. But when God gives a command, they're, not, they're like, oh, I don't want to do that. So one is important, but two is important too, right? That when God says, I want you to do this, I want you to be this way, that we are obedient to what he says. So he goes, verse four. On the third day, Abram raised his eyes and he saw the place from a distance. 
So he's been, been on the, I can't even imagine what the trail ride's like, right? You know, you're heading down to this place. And for three days, Isaac's like, what are we going to do, Dad? <laughs> you know, Isaac's not a kid, by the way, anymore. He's not like, you know, it's like a six-year-old Isaac. He's going to take up there and overpower him or anything. This is a full-grown man with a, what, a 125-year-old dad or so. He's a 25-year-old guy, roughly. On the third day, Abraham raises his eyes as they're walking along, and he sees the mount, the Mount of Moriah. He sees it in the distance. And Abraham said to the young men who were going with him, he says, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship and return to you. I love that line, by the way. Do you see what he said there? The servants who were traveling with him, he says, you guys stay right here, because Isaac and I are going to go a little further. And then, you know what? We're gonna, we're, we, plural, we're going to return to you. See the trust that he has in God? Because here's what's going on in Abraham's mind. He understands that God's made a promise that through Isaac, all the world's going to be blessed, his offspring Isaac. He also understands that God has said, go kill him, right? So he's trying to reconcile all that. And all he knows is, hey, maybe I'm supposed to go kill him, but God, and we know from Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter, right? God's able to raise him from the dead if that's what happens, right? Hebrews 11, verses 15 through 17 or so. He, it was reckoned to him that he thought that even if God commands me to do this, I know he can raise him from the dead. Now, you... To you and I, we're, we're used to, a little bit used to this idea of being raised from the dead, right? I mean, we had Jesus raised from the dead, so we're pretty cool with that concept, right? Lazarus. There are a few other folks in the Old Testament here and there that some things happen, a little boy and some stuff like that. But at this point in history, nobody ever has been raised from the dead. If somebody died, guess what happened to them? They were lowered <laughs> into the ground, not raised to newness of life. You know what I'm saying? But here's Abraham, a man of faith, trusting in the Lord, knowing he has a promise from the Lord. He has an instruction from the Lord. He cannot see how the two can be reconciled. Then he goes, we're going up yonder. He must have been from the south. We're going up yonder, and then we're going to come back. That's faith. I love that, by the way. I love the fact that he's just, he doesn't know what's going to happen. God hasn't told him through anything that we know here. He just knows he's got some promises, and he's just clinging on by faith. I love that. Verse 6, <laughs> Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on, his, on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife and the two of them walked on together. Here he is surrendered. This is the fourth thing. He's surrendering to God's will, okay? He's ready and available. God gives him instruction. He's obedient to the instruction. In, in the way, he's not arguing with God, but he's trusting in the Lord, and he's surrendered to God's will. Those are four marks that you see so far. And here you have the beautiful picture, the type that's received back according to Hebrews chapter 11 of Isaac carrying the only wood of his execution up to the hill called Moriah. As they're going along, verse 7, Isaac speaks up to his father, to Abraham, and he says, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, Dad, I, I see the, the fire. I see the wood. Where, where, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? We're going up to this burnt offering. I see all the, everything that we've done. We've done this faithfully over the years but I don't see the lamb where's the lamb and Abraham verse 8 says 
God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so the two of them walked on together. And there you have the fifth component. He's confident in God's provision, okay? These are all so closely inter- interrelated, but he's ready, he's obedient, he's trusting in the promises of the Lord, he's surrendered to, the God, to God's will, and he knows that God will provide. That's a guy who has his mind set in a different way than we often have our mindsets, if we're honest, right? He says literally there in the Hebrew, God will see for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together. <laughs> Verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, the mountain in Moriah. And Abraham built the altar there. And he arranged the wood. And then, check this out, he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. So again, where's the lamb? We don't see it yet. Anything changing here? No, nothing's changing. We've got a burnt offering going on. He does it just as is according to the custom, to the way God's laid it out. He makes an altar. He lays down the wood. He takes his son. And what does it say about Abraham's example and Isaac's watching of his father that this 125-year-old guy can bind a 25-year-old man onto an altar that he trusts as well? What does he learn from his dad? What has he seen? I mean, what has he been, what's been modeled for him as he's walked along in the steps beside him for these past years, along with him? And here he is. He submits, too. He's, followed, he's seen that submission from his dad. <coughs> and he lays him on the altar on top of the wood. Verse 10, Abraham stretches out his hand. He takes his knife, and he's going to slay his son. That's the command, right? You don't see him going, okay, I'm here, Lord. Uh, the wood's out. The, the, you know, I know the next thing, i got to kill him. Now would be a good time for an interruption. You don't see anything like that. He's going through the processes, trusting in the Lord, confident in God's provision, surrendered to God's will, obedient to his maker. <coughs> he takes out his knife to slay, and there's a, those beautiful words again, his son. Now, verse 11, but, uh, that's, when, that's like, you're right, it's the hinge. When you see that little word, but, that's like a hinge of a door, man. Something's about to change. But you were dead in your, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but Christ died for you, right? I mean, things are going to change. It was this way. It's now this way. The knife is up. It's about to be cut, cut the throat of Isaac, his son, his only son, whom he loved. He's about to cut his throat and then light his corpse on fire. But... The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, what? (laughs) Here I am. (laughs) Woo, (laughs) right? Oh, I love that, right? Whenever God, you know, this is God. Okay, the angel of the Lord, second person of the Trinity, Christ, pre-incarnate. Okay, that's typical throughout the, the, the Old Testament when you see the definite article with the angel of the Lord, okay? And here it is. He says, Abraham, Abraham. When you see that, it's like, Moses, Moses, hey, watch out, burning bush, right? Uh, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He's getting his attention. He says, here I am. He says, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from who? What does it say? From who? Me. From God. 
That's how we know that, okay? Now, what, ha what did not happen here, in case you get confused, is God didn't all of a sudden learn something, like it could sound like in the English text there. Now I know that. He knew that. His testing is never for the purpose of uh, finding out new information, because God knows all information, right? His testing is, in the New Testament, the Greek word would be dokimadzo. It's a, it's a testing for the purpose of proving to be true. That's the way he tests. So he says, now, now I see illustrated for me the reality of your heart, and that is that you, did, you would not withhold anything, your most precious one, your son, your only son from me. Isn't that beautiful? So what God does is he, 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 he steps in, and he relieves Abraham from the burden of killing his son, his only son, whom he loves, Isaac. Verse 13. <clears throat> then Abraham raised his eyes and he looked and behold behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered the ram up as a burnt offering in the place of his son. And there we find him worshiping. And Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide Jehovah Jireh, right? As it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Okay, so what's, what's this all about? Why does God throw this, in, this story into the word of God? And what's the, what are we supposed to get from this? I mean, we can see the attributes of Abraham that we've talked about, right? That he's ready and available, that he's obedient when God tells him what to do, that he's uh, trusting in God as he calls him to do that, right? That he surrendered to God's will, that he knows that God's provide. And by the way, all those things are not simple, are they? but part of, the, part of the faith walk that you and I are called to do. And so I think what we look at on this is we see a guy who is, his mindset is above the things that are the most important to him. So I mean, if, you think, if you were thinking from merely a horizontal perspective, and if you were only thinking of your 70, 80 years, you would be like, hey, my son? I can't kill my son, right? But if you're thinking, God knows best, God's up to something, he's going to show himself mighty in this, he'll provide, he'll resurrect, who knows what he's going to do. All I know is he's got the whole picture in view, and I'm going to trust him, right? What do we learn from that? Is it different for us now? I mean, do we live in a different time where God never calls us to trust in him, that we're to live our lives only in view of the 70, 80 years and not in view of eternity? I, I say to you that that's not the case. We may have... Um, made ourselves comfortable with the notion that our Christianity is an accessory that we put on on Sunday mornings and tire ties and, and put the Bible in the car and all that kind of stuff and tell the kids, go listen, you know, that kind of thing. We may have made ourselves comfortable with that, but Christianity never was and never will be that, true Christianity. True Christianity is an exchange where you have seen the grace of God poured upon your life. You have received God's riches at Christ's expense, right? And now he has bought you. You're no longer a slave to sin, but you're a slave to who? Righteousness and to God. And that he has he's bought you not just so he can say, hey, check out all my slaves. He bought you so that he can use you mightily to accomplish his will in our generation. Cornerstone Bible Church is full of people who have been redeemed by the grace of God and are called out to have an impact on the community around them, whether that community's a Riverside or a Fullerton or a Pasadena or a Valencia or wherever, right? Downey? Even Moreno Valley. No, I'm kidding. 
Uh, I don't even know what that means. Uh, here's the deal. You know what I'm saying? God has not called us just to sit here and just bide time waiting for heaven. You know, isn't it great? Got saved by God, texting people about it. You know, and all of a sudden it's like, hey, yeah, I'm 80 years, I'll die. And then we'll go up there and we'll get our great home, streets, streets of gold, pearls, all that kind of stuff. No, 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 no. He saved us, he redeemed us, he changed us, he empowered us, he directs us so that we can carry out his purposes in our generation. That's bigger than being the world's best lawyer. It's more fantastic than being the most respected doctor. It is the greatest, greatest calling on earth. You may do that as a great doctor. You may do that as a great lawyer. Hmm, maybe. And uh, you know what I mean? But God has called us to quit just sitting here going, well, let's see. Hmm, can I move up from my Buick to my BMW? Can I get a house with a little bit more stuff and a better pool? And maybe I want a water slide this time, you know? Well, I mean, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a pool or a water slide or a BMW. I'm not saying any of that. It's not the point. Don't get distracted, okay? What I'm saying is that God has called us to impact our generation through whatever means is necessary that he gives us. And he is entrusting us with several resources to that, right? What are some of the resources that you have? This is okay to talk here. What are some of the resources that God gives you that you can impact the generation around you with? Number one, anybody? Anybody but the pastor? Anybody? Nobody? I heard money from somewhere. Who said that? It's you again. Anybody but my mom and the pastor. <laughs> yeah, money's one. What else? Your family? Good. What else? Time. Your time. Excellent. The scripture. Yeah, here's the deal. He has given everything that you can think of that is related to your life that God has bestowed upon you can be used for eternal purposes. All right? I mean, God, and this is not one that I want to put on your list, but God can even use sinful bad things for good now that doesn't the, the, don't write this down in your notes it's not like hey let me go sin so god can use forget that's not the point right but even the points where we as fallen people uh fall in some way sin we lose our temper we respond negatively or something like that as we then submit ourselves to, the, to what god's word says right we're ready and available he says you know hey i want you to get that right with people uh and we do that and we trust him for that and we surrender to his will and we know he's going to provide. We don't, it doesn't matter you know, if we lose face or whatever. And you go and do that. I tell you what, people are amazed. You go into your workplace. If you work with a lot of non-Christians, and if you did something that was maybe not Christ-like, and you go back to the person that maybe offended or something like that, and you say, I want to ask your forgiveness, and let me tell you why. That will have an impact. Don't go snap at them so you can do that. You see, you're going to do it anyway probably at some point. So just, you know, respond properly as you're going. Everything that is a part of our life can be used. Your vocation, your, your family, as these arrows are being put uh, in, you know, taken and aimed in a certain direction. True? Your, your, your time. See, what I'm afraid of is that we have organized ourselves in such a way that we have no time to carry out eschatological matters. Think about that for a little bit. Do you have enough time in your life to minister? Well, sure I do, Pastor. Okay. Who are you discipling? If you're a Christian, can I just 
say you ought to be a disciple in somebody. He'll say, I just came to the Lord last week. We'll start on the next guy. You know, reach out and evangelize and whoever God brings, start working on him. Teach him what you know. May just be what you got from Pastor John's sermon last week and then you're just taking it and you're applying it and he's learning right behind you. You see, we don't disciple like we should because we're so busy. Well, I've got six soccer games. My kids are in tennis, swim club, you know, all kinds of stuff. Uh, you know, I've got to go play golf three times a week, you know. And we end up with no time. Oh, I sure like to help that person. But I just don't have the time. Time is a God-given resource. And we're to use it as a stewardship. Have you ordered your life in such a way that you can be, as we saw in Abraham, ready and available when God directs? That's a first step, isn't it? What was the other thing we saw in Abraham? We saw that he was obedient to what God said. Well, how am I going to be obedient to what God says? What's the stewardship that I've been given that I need to make proper use of so that I know what God's saying? gentleman right here said it, right? The scriptures. He's entrusted us by the blood of the martyrs. This thing's been preserved by the hand of God so that we might have it in an unaltered form in our hand so that we may know as if God were to speak to us right now from that book right over there. Isn't that awesome? I mean, it really, if you think about it, I mean, you've, you've heard me talk about love letters from Kim, how much, you know, I didn't, uh, you know, I'd read those as soon as I got them. Well, this is a love letter from God, right? This is, his, this is better than that in a sense. It's our anniversary. We've been married 25 years. This isn't going to kill the deal. It's better than that because it's the inerrant, infallible, true word of God. And what in these words are life. So if I want to know what God wants me to do, and i.e., what are my priorities? How should my life be structured? How should I respond in any given situation? Guess what? I believe everything he needs right here. You say, well, I'm trying to pick between two jobs. Where's the chapter and verse on should I go to Nordoff or Boeing, Right? Northrop or Bowen? Well, there's not a verse for that, but I'll tell you what. There are verses about the character of God and what we're to be about. And if, if one of them allows you to minister better than the other and all things, if everything's exactly equal, pick one. God's gracious, right? Quit dilly-dallying. Enjoy it. Some people don't have any choices of jobs. But I'm going to look at my life and I'm going to say, you know, God's character is he wants me to be a, he wants me to be a witness. If this job doesn't give me time to do that, or, or if I can't figure out a way to be more creative in how I do it within the job, I don't have time because I'm traveling. Okay, well, what about the guy next to you on the plane, right? What about the person you're sitting beside in the meeting? You have the breaks or something. How can you build those relationships and have that opportunity? So we're looking around and we're saying, I've got to structure my life in such a way that when I, what I find here, these priorities, I live out. And if, if my job or anything else is getting in the way of that, now be careful here because people were very good at rationalizing these things away and saying, well, it's my job is causing me not to do this. And it's really not our job. It's because we're disobedient and we're not willing to do it. But if, if it were, then you need to reorder your life. You really do. We do. Because we want to be obedient to what God says. We want to be available, ready to be used. And what God says, then I want to follow through with. I gotta trust him, right? You say, wow, you know, if I witness like this, man, I may not get another promotion, right? Because they're gonna think of me as some kind of religious fanatic. That's very possible. It may have nothing to do with it, too. 
you're not instructed here to go find a promotion. You're instructed here to follow the one true God and go and make disciples disciple. Well, I mean, if I, if I take my resources like my money and give like the Bible shows, you know, I mean, look at some of these people. Look at people selling land and giving it to the church, people giving on the first fruits, people giving regularly and sacrificially, and all that kind of stuff, helping out the saints in need in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. If I'm like that, I, I'm not going to have the money for what I want. Well, how did you get the money you got anyway, right? God gave it to you. Let's trust him. If he wants us to respond a certain way with our money, the best, most righteous position to be in is to do what he says, right? That's, a, that's, a, that's Our time and our money are the great indicators, quite honestly, of our spiritual walk. That's why there's so many, it's, there's so many verses in the Bible on money. Have you noticed this? I mean, he talks, what is it, one, three times, maybe more than that. It's at least three times as much about money as he does than about faith in the New Testament. Think about that for just a second. Why is that? Well, it's not because money is more important for sure. It's because our, our proving ground tends to be when we look at our, our schedule and we look at our checkbook register. Do people use checkbook registers anymore? Anyway, when you look at QuickBooks or whatever and you look at your, it's not daytime, right? what do you do? I look at my Apple, whatever. You know, then that shows really where my heart is, doesn't it, most of the time. So this is not a fundraiser. I'm not saying it is a fundraiser, but what I am saying is you need to look at that as part of the deal because that reveals your words, your uh, time, and, and your money reveals your heart according to Scripture. By the way, did you notice what Abraham was willing to give up? How many of you would empty your bank accounts today rather than kill your son if that was the instruction? Right? No brainer, Right? I find it interesting, Mount Moriah. I don't know if you realize this. This is a place where there's just a lot of, a lot of giving over the years. I mean, here's an example here where, where Abraham comes up just willing to give the most precious thing in the world to him. You know that Mount Moriah is also what? You know what's going to be built on this thing eventually? The temple. No, the temple, right? So this is Temple Mount, all right? This was Arana's threshing floor. Do you remember that from 2nd Turn to 2 Samuel 4. Or 24. There's a story there where there's an angel of the Lord who is is coming down. He's wiping out people, okay, from Dan to Beersheba. That's from the north to the south of Israel. (coughs) 70,000 people get wiped out by this pestilence, okay? And this angel that's behind the pestilence, he stretches out his hand in verse 16 to Jerusalem to destroy it. But the Lord... He, he relents, that's a covenant name Lord there by the way, the Lord relents from the calamity and he says to the angel that destroyed the people, he says it's enough, relax your hand. By the way, you know where he's at? The same place where an angel shows up and says, oh, stay your hand there Abraham, not going to do this today. He's on Mount Moriah, same place. So David looks at this and he's like, you know, hey, this is, this is he wants to, to worship God. He wants to build an altar. And Gad instructs him to do that. The prophet Gad instructs him to do that. So he goes, and so he goes up to Arana to, to try to buy this, this threshing floor where this, the angel stopped everything. 
Mount Moriah. And he's like, hey, I'll, no, no problem. I'll give it to you, whatever you need. You need something to sacrifice? I'll give you the whole shebang. You know, Arana's like <laughs> happy to give it all to him. And David says, and he says, it's so profound here, right? He says, no, I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. Second Samuel 24, 24. I don't want to worship that has no cost. And so he bought it. And he bought the oxen, and he built an altar, and he worshiped. So here, again, sacrificial giving. Both Arana, who was ready to, David, who did it. Now, you move forward into New Testament lines, there's more giving coming here, because what's built upon this spot now is the temple. Okay? And if you turn forward to Luke chapter 21, we find ourselves at the same location. <coughs> this time we find Jesus standing in the temple treasury, Right? Luke 21.1, and he looks up and he sees the rich coming in and they're putting their gifts into the treasury. Now the treasury of the temple was these big uh, uh, brass trumpets. There were 13 of them. They were shaped kind of like trumpets. They were little treasure chests, really, basically. Each of them were inscribed with vows and different kinds of offerings and that kind of stuff. And so people would make a show of it, as you can imagine, with the giving, the public giving thing. So the, the Pharisees, those kind of guys would come in rich, you know, they'd turn all their they they take their $100 bills and turn them into pennies so they make a louder clink, right? Drop them in there, bloom, you know, bloom. And everybody's like, ooh, that was a good gift. It's just like, nice gift. And Jesus, it says, he's watching, right? Look at verse 2. It says he saw a certain poor widow putting in two small copper coins. Greek word lepta there. It means just thin, small. They're worth about an eighth of a cent what that was worth. She drops them in there. Now, at that point, when those things go in, do you think anybody in the place was going, what was that? Well, did you hear that? Wasn't that a great offering? Woo! Let's give a hand clap to the Lord on that one. You know, that kind of, none of that was going on, right? Nobody even noticed that, right? Other than Jesus, who saw, and Jesus sees, right? Did the temple get significantly richer when she did that? Not a bit. Not a bit. But here was a woman who, who did what? She gave. It's biblical giving, sacrificial giving. Look what it says. He says, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. I mean, she was going home with nothing but whatever happened to be left in the cupboard and nothing to go get anything else. What a, well, how different is that from today's giving? I mean, most people give after I pay my bills, after I've gone out to eat, after I go and pay for ball games and gas up my car, buy a vehicle, whatever else. Then what do I got left? Okay, let's give something to the Lord. And it may be big. Here she gave what she had to live on, all that she had to live on. It's like those Macedonian churches in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 who were out of their poverty gave to help the saints that were in need in Jerusalem. Their temple didn't get any richer, but she got immeasurably poorer in a sense. She gave it all. Now let me ask you a question. What was the value of that gift there on Mount Moriah? 
You think that's had an impact? What about the Pharisee that was in line before that dropped in? A million times that much. I don't know anything about that guy's gift, right? But for 2,000 years so far, people have been encouraged to follow Christ and understand what biblical giving looks like by those two little coins that she never even knew was going to be written about or anything, right? She was just being faithful, and God used it. See, that's the thing. This is a beautiful place where when Abraham goes up there to sacrifice his son, it's a, it's a sacrifice. When Arana is offering his floor, it's a sacrifice. When, when David buys that threshing floor, it's a sacrifice. I don't want to do anything that doesn't cost me anything. And the widow comes in there, she drops those tiny little coins in there. It's a sacrifice. She gave all that she had. And with an ice out of, out of this hill, just not too far away at Mount Calvary, you know, there's another sacrifice, right? Where, where God did what he, to, he didn't afford himself the same luxury he gave to Abraham, right? He takes his son, his only son, whom he loves, right? And he takes him and the wood on his back and he takes him to the top of the mountain and he pays the price, right? He doesn't stay the hand. Jesus in the garden is saying, if, not my will, but yours. But if there's a way, let this cup pass. No, there's no way. This is the way. And Jesus knew that, right? And so we're, God sends an angel, Jesus, in fact, to, to stay the hand of Abraham. Now Jesus is on the cross with an eye shot of the very same hill paying the penalty, the greatest gift ever given, right, for our behalf. Wow. And when he uses a metaphor of the Christian walk, the winsome beauty of the eschatological mindset, he says, deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. Because that's the picture. There could be things I could buy that I don't because there's a missionary I want to support, right? There could be things that uh, I want to do with my time that would be selfish of me to do, but I don't because I've, there are much more fulfilling things to do with my time, right? What's our life like? And that's the question, because again, it, to me, it, it goes, to, it stands to reason that if we're called to this life that is a deny, and by the way, deny is such a negative word, right, to most of us anymore. I don't want you to think as I'm talking about this that it's all about just like, I'm going to give up, I'm going to get a camel hair shirt, and I'm going to stand on top of a pillar in the middle of the desert, and everybody's going to think I'm holy. I'm not talking about that, right? I'm talking about a denial that gains more. It's an investment, right? Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. You know what I mean? Where moth and rust don't destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. This is great investing, by the way. Not health and wealth type, but it's great investing. And we're called to live a life that is a different perspective. And we, we pick up our cross instead of running from a cross. We, we, we obey God even when it looks like it could cost us something that's dear to us. We trust in his promises, and we do not lean on our own understanding. The call for each one of us this morning is a simple one, right? Is my life organized in a manner where I'm available to be used by God? Am I a man of the word or a woman of the word so that I know what God is calling me to do? Am I submitting myself to what I find there, obedient to that truth, trusting in the Lord, surrendering to his will? And even when it's a little scary, some of the things he might ask of me, am I going to trust in him for his provision? 
And all those things really define. They really change the way you live from the 70, 80 years to a more eschatological mindset where you're thinking of the big picture. I love the question that Isaac asked of his father as he's walking up the hill. He says, I see the wood. I see the fire. I see all this stuff. Where's the lamb? And you remember in our passage, did a lamb show up? What showed up in the thicket? Caught by his horns. A ram, right? And I just think about it. I think, boy, that that little question of Isaac's, where's the lamb? Just hung in the air for 2,000 years, right? (laughs) Until out in the desert by the Jordan River, a guy named John looks across. And he sees the one who stayed Abraham's hand. What does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's awesome. God provides. God provides. Fear not, my friends. Be ready and available. Change your life in such a way that every person who is part of Cornerstone Bible Church can be used of God to impact this world with the gospel so that eternal eternity is impacted. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for this time together. We thank you for your word, and it does cut us deep, and it, uh, it, it shows us things in ourselves that are inconsistent. It shows us uh, truths that we need to seek to apply better by your grace, but it directs us to a more beautiful trail to live our life on. Father, I pray for each of us as we've encountered the story of Abraham and, and the widow and Arana and the threshing floor and these different passages we've been in, Father, that we would just rejoice that you are a God who is good, who is sovereign, who is powerful, who sees the end from the beginning and who is working mightily within our lifetime to have an impact for eternity. Lord, use us. May we be found usable in Christ's name.